0: Before Tracy and I moved our family to Vancouver, we worked for nine years in Southeast Asia with an international Christian nonprofit. Our first few months overseas were some of the most stressful days of my life. Our little core team from the U.S. fell apart shortly after landing, and mostly due to interpersonal conflict on the team. No excuses. Uh, but the environment on the island was a virtual pressure cooker and not just because of the heat and the humidity our project was almost a year behind on the day that we arrived and the city we found ourselves in was dirty and overcrowded and the stench of burning trash was ever present so we were off kilter during those early days and We didn't know the language, and we didn't know the culture, and our team was making very little headway on the mission. What's funny about that is what I remember most about the conflict on the team was this. I found out one day that one of the team members lied about me. He slandered me to headquarters and tried to blame the problems of the team on me. What's interesting is I look back on this is that these lies were the least of our problems. But I remember it vividly because it was an attack on me. It was an injustice against me, and my reputation was damaged. And that angered me. And I wish I could say that I responded by opening my Bible to Psalm 4, meditating on it, and then following King David's example, but I didn't. I knew I was in the right, and so during a meeting, I let him have it. I justified myself, and I made sure that he knew that he was probably the biggest problem, not me. I spoke the truth, but there was zero love. I was harsh and disrespectful to that man, and no surprise, it made the problems worse. As the conflict dragged on, I could hardly sleep at night, I would give up around three or four in the morning and I would go downstairs and I would read and pray. And my prayers, I'm I'm embarrassed to say, my prayers during those days were things like this God, why did you bring me halfway around the world for this to happen? And uh, what did I do to deserve this? I was pathetic. You see, there were many lessons that I needed to learn, and God had good and loving reasons for putting me through this, and I wouldn't trade those lessons for anything in the world today. The Lord knew that his child was immature and needed to grow, and this was his way of disciplining me for my own good and for his glory. Good fathers do that. But I do wish that someone had pointed me to Psalm 4 during those days and said, Tate, Meditate on this, pray this, do this, I think it would have saved me a lot of sleepless nights. So let me do that for you this morning. The principles in Psalm 4 will probably not take away the immediate sting of being wronged or attacked or slandered, but it will certainly equip you with the spiritual tools that you need to endure it with patience and with joy and in peace. So let's move to Psalm chapter 4. From the heading which Mark read, uh, we know that this psalm was a psalm of David, but we don't know exactly why David wrote this psalm or when he wrote it. The psalm doesn't offer us many clues. Some scholars think that David composed it when King Saul was trying to kill him. That's what John Calvin thought, though he quickly said in his commentary that if anyone disagreed with him, he would not greatly contend with them about it. Some think that David wrote it when he was fleeing for his life from Absalom. As we saw last week, that was the background to Psalm 3, and these two psalms do seem to be linked, and so that is a possibility. Another possibility, which is wildly different, is that David wrote this psalm during a drought or a famine, And that's appealing because it it could shed some light on David's words in verse 7 that the Lord gives him more joy than when his enemies have, than their enemies have when their grain and wine abound. But the bottom line is we don't know the background to this text. Whatever may have caused David's distress here, his enemies seem to be using it as an opportunity to slander his honor. As one commentator put it, probably good that we don't know exactly why David wrote it, these various proposals make one conclusion rather obvious. The psalm can fill the need of many souls under many circumstances. The psalm is a petition for help from God by one who is confident, in spite of the skepticism of others, that God will respond. The psalm appears to be written especially for the evening hours. Take a look back at last week's Psalm, Psalm chapter 3, verse 5. We learned about this last week. I lay down and slept. I woke up again, for the Lord sustained me. That verse and the fact that David used the past tense, he laid down, he went to sleep, and then he woke up, makes us think that Psalm 3 was written to be sung in the morning, looking forward to a whole new day of trouble. And now look at verse 8 of our psalm, and here David uses the future tense, and he says, in peace I will both lie down, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So it appears that uh, this psalm was written for the evening hours, so in times of distress, you can recite or sing Psalm 3 when you get up in the morning, and then in the evening, sing Psalm 4 before going to sleep my goal this morning is to trace David's thoughts in this song as he moves from a lament over the distress that he's experiencing, whatever the cause of it may have been, to instruction, to a deep trust and confidence that the Lord will answer his prayers. I don't know what distress you are in this morning. I know of hurting marriages. I know of children who have abandoned the faith. I know there are those who are out of work and anxious about how to pay the bills next month. Whatever your distress, even if you're being slandered on Twitter, I want Psalm 4 to become for you a new tool in your, in your tool belt of faith. When you can't sleep at night because you are stressed out of your mind over what the enemy is doing to you or saying about you, I want this psalm to be a weapon for you to wield against the enemy when he threatens to undo you with his attacks and his lies. I want you to know it, sing it, pray it, and apply it every day you need it. In verse 1, David cries out to his God. He doesn't immediately tell us what he wants But the request unfolds throughout the psalm. David calls God the God of my righteousness. And he's not claiming here to be perfect or sinless. But he is saying that in this situation, he was innocent. And he is looking to God to be the vindicator of his right, as Calvin put it. He appeals to God, not on his own perfection, but to God as the one who judges justly. See, in this matter, it seems that David had acted rightly and his conscience was clear. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And then David grounds this prayer in the faithfulness of God. You've saved me in the past, he says. You've vindicated me when my enemies attacked. Do it again, Lord. You've given me relief when I was in distress Even now, then, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. A prayer for grace. That's how David opens this psalm. It is a plea to God to deliver him from his distress. And it is a plea for God to grant him grace and to answer his prayer. David then turns in verse 2 to his enemies. And he says, O men, How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? It becomes clear now that this prayer is about vindication. It's about righting a wrong. This is where it gets really interesting. What was David's honor that his enemies were shaming? If you're using the King James Version or the uh, New International Version, It reads glory instead of honor, and it's the same word. What was David's honor or glory that was being trampled underfoot by his enemies? We might might be tempted to think that it was his authority or his position as the king, and there's some truth to that, but I think a fuller answer is found in last week's psalm. Flip back to Psalm 3 and take a look at verse 3. Psalm 3.3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. The word glory there is the identical word translated honor in this psalm. So David's honor or glory was the honor or glory of God. David's personal honor was probably at stake as well, but his greater concern, in this case at least, seems to be the glory of God. His honorable reputation, the glory of Israel as a kingdom, was certainly being slandered. But David saw the glory of his kingship and the glory of his kingdom as a derived glory. It came from God. So ultimately, God's glory was what David had as his primary concern here. And I think there's a lesson for us. When our cause is just... The enemy's lying attacks are primarily leveled against our God. Yes, they bring shame to his people. But first and foremost, they are an assault on the honor of the God to whom we belong. So when you're slandered or mocked online or to your face, for example, if you are celebrating as most of us are, the overturn of Roe versus Wade. The cause is just. Their attacks are not primarily against you. They are raging against their creator and against his honor. But here's the comfort for us. We're his people and we belong to him. And he answers when we pray. And that's exactly what David says to his enemies in verse 3 know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Unless you think because you're not in distress right now or you're not living in a time of trouble that this psalm doesn't apply to you, let me make one more comment about distress. None of us are free from trouble in this life. That means that every one of us will be able to put this psalm into practice. And if not today and tomorrow, if not tomorrow, then sometime in the future, you will be in trouble. You will be in distress. The Apostle Paul warned the younger pastor Timothy that all who desire, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Calvin had a wonderful take on that passage. He asks, must all men be martyrs? I reply, it is not always in one way that Satan persecutes the servants of Christ, but yet it is absolutely unavoidable that all of them shall have the world for their enemy in some form or other that their faith may be tried and their steadfastness proved. For Satan, who is the continual enemy of Christ, will never suffer anyone to be at peace during his whole life. And there will always be wicked men that are thorns in our sides. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples. In the world, you will have tribulation. None of us are free from trouble in this life. So don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. The real question is this. How are we to respond to the inevitable times of trouble that come upon us? In verses 4 and 5, David turns from addressing his enemies to addressing the people. In fact, I believe he's not only addressing the people, but he's addressing his own heart. He is preaching to himself four ways to respond to distress in this life. The most obvious one is prayer. I'll save that one for last. Verse 4, be angry, David writes, and do not sin. This is a very difficult command. He's saying it's not always a bad thing to be angry, but as you and I know, it usually is for us. Rarely is our anger righteous. Paul quoted this verse and gave the same command in his letter to the Ephesians, and the context is similar. He tells the Ephesians to stop lying and speak the truth with their neighbors, and then he says, be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you want to see what that looks like, Jesus showed us, remember when he drove out All of those money changers in the temple and he overturned the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus wasn't merely cleaning house or politely asking those people to move on. He was righteously angry over what they were doing in God's house. And so he made a whip of cords and he drove them out of the temple. We also see his anger at the Pharisees when on a Sabbath morning he healed the man with a withered hand. He said to them, the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger. Grieved, and that's the key, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And so he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. So how do we know if our Anger is righteous? Well, this is a really tricky question. I wrestled with it this past week. The bottom line answer is that we need to examine our hearts, but sometimes that is really hard to do because our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. When the enemy attacks, when you read that email or the tweet, before you do anything, examine your heart. Is the anger that just welled up inside you righteous or not? Here are five questions you can use to probe your heart to answer that question. When they posted that about me, ask this, whose honor was under attack? Was my primary concern the honor of God or someone else's honor or just my own? Was the name of God being profaned or is my reputation being damaged? This is not a hard and fast rule, but generally it's safer for us to focus or to feel anger and indignation about God's glory being impugned than our own. We're to be jealous for His name, not our own. So ask yourself first, whose honor is being attacked? Number two. Is my anger against the person or against my spiritual enemy? We know that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against spiritual darkness. That question is not meant to say that there's never a time to be angry at a person. But I'm not going so far as saying that we need to hate the sin and love the sinner. That was Mahatma Gandhi. That was not Jesus. Jesus. This is a diagnostic question, though, to help us get a glimpse of what might be inside of our hearts. So ask yourself, is my anger directed against my husband or against the spiritual forces of evil that are at work against my marriage? Question number three. This is closely related to number two. Am I grieved by the evil or am I merely infuriated by it or at the person who said it or did it to me? Remember Jesus and the Pharisees. He looked around at them with anger, but he was grieved at their hardness of heart. Am I grieved by the evil itself? Number four, from where does my anger arise? Does it come from pride or selfishness? Am I just being stubborn? Is there any righteous cause for which I am feeling this anger? Number five, and this advice comes from a really helpful article that I'd be happy to send to you ask yourself is there a log in my eye don't be a hypocrite you're in no position to feel or to express righteous anger if you cannot see clearly first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's well those are 5 diagnostic questions that might be helpful as you examine your heart and i'm sure that you can think of others. But as you're examining yourself, if you see that the anger that you feel is not a righteous anger, then confess it as the sin that it is to God. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I think maybe the first time that I clearly remember feeling a righteous anger, the type of anger that left me grieving over the evil and Still having a clear conscience about the anger was, years ago, uh, friends told us that they were leaving the mission field uh, because of adultery. Their ministry, at least in my view, was one of the few in the area that was producing fruit. Uh, they were proclaiming the gospel. they were making disciples and they were planting churches, and the enemy just took them down. I was grieved. And I was angry over what the enemy had done. The enemy had committed this evil against them, and the impact of that evil impacted so many people. I hated the enemy for what he did. And that is not to excuse the adulterer, but it is to focus my anger on the spiritual forces that are at work. So examine your heart. Verse 4, be angry, do not sin. Number 2, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Before you act, check your heart. Is my anger righteous? Then before you open your mouth, spend time contemplating and meditating and pondering. We need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Ponder the truth that God is the God who sets rights wrong that he is the God of justice, that, he, that you can call him the God of your righteousness like David did in verse one. Ponder the faithfulness of God like David and let God's faithfulness to you in the past breathe fresh courage into your prayers. And ponder the truth that God's people belong to him, as we saw in verse 3. That God answers the prayers of his people. And that he gives joy and peace to his people, as we'll see at the end of this psalm. Verse 5. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So before you act, examine your heart. Before you speak, ponder in silence. And now when you do act, let it be an act of worship. Worship that leads to a deeper trust and dependence upon your God. Remember, up to this point, the enemy has not stopped his attack or ceased his lies. But we're going to put our confidence in our God to deliver us. We're going to worship him, trusting that he will vindicate us. Our cause is his cause. He will justify us. We don't need to justify ourselves. We simply worship, putting all of our trust in Him. Someone has said that worship is simply acknowledging and thanking God for all that He is and all that He does. And I would add to that that it's also trusting God for all that He will do. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. As we move in the psalm now to verse 6, David turns from the people and his own heart, and he turns to God in prayer. He says to the Lord, verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. There are a lot of people, Lord, asking if anyone will come help us. Is there anyone who will do us some good, who will rescue us, deliver us, or save us? That's what others are saying. But David knew where to turn for help. His help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He knows what these people were saying. And he knows that they were looking to others. They were looking to creatures to deliver them from whatever this trouble was. But David confidently goes to his creator. And he prays what I believe is the core of this prayer. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Show us some goodness, O Lord. You see, to ask God to lift up the light of his face upon you is more than just asking for deliverance from trouble. It is asking of God the ultimate good. It is asking of him the ultimate blessing. It is seeking fullness of joy before the face of God. It is seeking to be in his presence, at his right hand, where there are pleasures forevermore. It is seeking to feast on the abundance of his house and to drink from the river of his delights. Because the Lord is the fountain of life. It is a seeking to taste and see how good the Lord is. That's David's prayer. Those who say, Who will show us some good? are looking in the wrong place and they're asking far too little. David goes straight to the fountain Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. In verse one, he prayed for grace, and now he opens that up by asking for the ultimate blessing that the face of God would shine upon him. That's a good prayer. That's a good prayer when you are in the midst of troubling times. And he prayed this prayer in full confidence that God would answer him. His confidence came, as we saw, from reflecting on the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness that God had showed him in the past, and and for reflecting on two things that God had granted him in the midst of the trouble that he was now experiencing, joy and peace. Verses seven and eight. You have put more joy, this is a phenomenal part of his prayer. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. What a comfort. The joy that David had in his distress was greater than what his enemies had when they prosper in this life. And that's because the joy of the believer does not rest on the things of the earth. That's why the prophet Habakkuk could say, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and Fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stalls. That's bleak. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Not only does David have joy, he also has peace. He can sleep Soundly at night, because his trust is in the Lord. Who alone can keep him safe? David's prayer betrays a remarkable confidence in God, but it's a fully warranted confidence because of the character of his God, because of the past faithfulness of his God, and the joy and the peace that he receives from his God. Now, we could stop there with Psalm And uh, that's good as far as it goes. There's a pattern there for us to follow in times of trouble. But I want us to see where this psalm points. Let's look at it through the lens of the New Testament. We know that David was merely a shadow... As the Israelites would sing Psalm 4, they had a good pattern here in David for how to respond to suffering and disgrace and injustice. In faith, and I'm going to recap here, in faith they could respond by examining their hearts to see if their anger was righteous. They could respond by silently pondering the truth that God is the one who sets things right, that God's people belong to him. And that he has always proven faithful to them. And that he is their only source of joy and peace. And they could respond in worship and in total trust that God was for them. And they could respond confidently to God in prayer. David was a good pattern of those things. But he was only a shadow. Jesus was the substance. You see, David was a shepherd of sheep. And of the people of Israel. Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. David conquered Goliath, it's true, but Jesus conquered death. David was king over Israel and Judah. Jesus is the king of kings. And David was promised an offspring to sit on the throne forever, but Jesus is the son of David, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. David was promised an offspring who the Lord would call his son. Jesus is the son of God. So in every way, King Jesus is superior to King David. But let's move closer to our text. David may have been innocent in whatever this injustice was that prompted Psalm 4, but King Jesus... Knew no sin. He was perfect. He was truly innocent. David suffered injustice at the hand of his enemies. Jesus suffered the penalty of the sins of mankind on the cross at the hands of men whom he had created for his glory. So even though David was a good pattern for suffering, Jesus is far greater and he's a far more perfect pattern. Let me show you this from one passage in the New Testament and then we'll close. This is the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. And when I saw this, I just rejoiced. It is is wonderful. In verse 9 of chapter 2, Peter calls the believers a people of his own possession. And then in verse 10, he wrote that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's the the substance of David's words in verse three, that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. So that's a good reason why we can take Psalm 4 and apply it to our lives today. Believers are the people of God. In verses 13 through 17, Peter tells these believers that they are, how they are to behave as sojourners in this world. He first tells them how to conduct themselves before government authorities, and then he addresses slaves, and that's the section I want you to see, but the context is important. He addresses slaves now, beginning at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. You can see that Peter's instructions here to these servants or these slaves is going to address how the servants are supposed to behave when an injustice is committed against them by the hands of evil men. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing When mindful of God, mark those words, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Mindful of God, that is exactly the pattern David set in Psalm 4. David the shadow showed us that as he was suffering, he was mindful of God, pondering on his bed in silence about the past faithfulness of his God and upon God's character. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? It's a good question. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So if it wasn't clear before, it should be clear now that this servant, just like David, was suffering for something that he didn't do. It was lies and falsehoods, but by enduring this injustice, God somehow sees it as a gracious thing. Verse 21, for to this you have been called. Remember, this is to the believers. For to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So here we go. Like this servant and like David centuries before him, we are called or chosen to suffer injustice in this world. You will have trouble, Jesus said. Why? Because Jesus, the substance of the shadow, suffered. Not only did Jesus suffer, but this verse says he suffered for us, thus leaving us the impossible example to follow. Here's where the substance infinitely outshines the shadow. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. You see, unlike David, Jesus was completely innocent. He was blameless, perfect, and sinless. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued in trusting himself. To him who judges justly. See, now that's the impossible pattern for us to follow. Now, Peter opens the door and lets us see exactly why Jesus was the perfect pattern and what Jesus did for us to make it possible for us to follow him in that pattern. Verse 24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree in order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The solution for suffering injustice is found in the suffering of Jesus at the cross. What happened there was in order that, or so that, we might die to sin and live to righteousness— That's an ultimate rescue from the deliverance of distress. That takes us from spiritual deadness to spiritual birth to living and suffering in righteousness like our Lord. To that, brothers and sisters, we have been called and none of us are exempt. Jesus is the pattern and the grace found at the cross is the power. The antidote to distress be it from suffering slander or insults is to follow the pattern of Jesus entrust yourself to the Lord to the one who judges justly and who will grant ultimate joy and peace if the message here for believers is to entrust yourself to the one who judges justly the message for any unbeliever in this room is the same Entrust yourself to God through Christ. You are straying like sheep. Return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Believers, let me leave you with these comforting words from our Lord. They come from His Sermon on the Mount. He touched, too, on the blessedness, the happiness, the joy, and peace of suffering, injustice in this life. Listen to His words. Most of you are familiar with them, but let them sink in. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Those are sort of key. Falsely on the account of Jesus. And then the impossible, made possible only by the work of our Lord on the cross, Rejoice, rejoice in suffering injustice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you and that includes the prophet David. Let me pray for you. Father, as we think about times of trouble and distress and and how we can run to your word for confidence that you hear the prayers of your people and that you answer, and that we can follow this pattern laid out by David and laid out perfectly by our Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember these things when times of distress come And Father, for my brothers and sisters who are feeling under attack this morning, Father, I pray that these words, the words of Psalm 4 would be a great comfort to them and build their confidence so that they would pray these things before they go to bed this evening. Father, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts. I pray that you would lift up The light of your face upon us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.